Today's reading is Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 765 and 766. Matthew 11, 1 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord today. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who will to come, who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? Is it like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates? We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Hear the word of the Lord today, Riverside. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, your son said, blessed is everyone who is not offended by me. Lord, it is my simple prayer this morning that as we encounter Jesus in this text, this challenging, strange, hard text, that Lord, we would see a vision that he is trying to communicate and that Lord, our response would be to turn to him and embrace him and not, Lord, to stumble over him or be offended by him. Lord, I ask that you would do the work that we have prayed for, that you would work in our hearts to make us more like your son, and that, Father, if there be some here who don't know the king, that today would be the day that they repent and bow the knee and believe in the Savior King who shed his blood for them. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. An election is around the corner. 
and more and more conversations are turning political, leading to the overzealousness of some and to the nausea of others. And I think it is good in this season to reflect upon the system of government that we have here in America. We live in a constitutional democracy or a democratic republic. In our system, we the people, of course, elect representatives and governors and presidents who then respectively pass and sign laws that are hopefully in accord with our primary foundational document, the U.S. Constitution, and laws that are hopefully serving the people well. So, in this system of government, we, the people of these United States, citizens of this nation, have a profound responsibility to take this season seriously, as challenging as that may be. And I would even say that we have an important duty to vote. Because we, if we are Americans, if you flesh out Romans 13 with much of anything, we, if we are Americans, are actually a part of the government that God himself has ordained to be over us. Now, all that being said, I have a certain response that I like to smile and give to people when they ask me my political views. And I have a lot of political views. And my response is generally meant to serve as a bridge between that conversation and Jesus, the Savior. With my tongue firmly in my cheek, I like to respond to them by saying, I am a monarchist. Which means, I am in favor of having a king. Now that is a fairly provocative thing for, American, for an American to say. After all, America's founding principles are antithetical to monarchy. But what I mean by this, and what I'm hoping to accomplish by this, is that though I am, of course, happy to be a part of a democratic republic and perform my duty of being informed and voting, my ultimate aim is to serve my risen king while I await his full kingdom to come. And as you might imagine, when I talk like this, it allows me to talk about Jesus and his gospel and his second coming with that person. Jesus is the king. And the king has come. That's what Matthew's gospel is all about. If you've been sitting here long enough and listening to these messages, you know that this is what Matthew's trying to share. But, but as we're going to see, the first century people of Israel were expecting a different kind of king. They were expecting a different kind of Messiah, a different kind of Christ to deliver them and lead them. They were expecting a king who would manifest tremendous political authority and demonstrate powerful earthly judgment. They expected him to reign as the sovereign heir on David's throne, defeating all earthly opposition and rule. But in their expectations of a king, most of them failed to realize the terrible problem 
that resided right in their own hearts. That they were great sinners before God and were in need of his saving grace. And they failed to comprehend what the prophets had declared. That the Messiah would first need to suffer and die for his sinful people. And now that Jesus has finished his second discourse, and as you recall, we finished that off last week when we completed chapter 10. But now that Jesus has finished that second sermon, that second discourse, he begins to showcase his heart-directed, spiritually-centered kingdom in the midst of an ever-increasing opposition. It's going to get worse from here on out. The people are going to reject him more and more. For the more and more he reveals himself and reveals his people's need for spiritual salvation, the more and more he will be misunderstood and rejected by the people. And of course, if you know the rest of the story, this opposition leads him to a cross where he suffered and bled and died for the sins of his people before rising again and sending them to a lost world who also need the king's message. Now, I'm going to approach this passage a little bit differently today. I want us to work through this interchange between Jesus and these disciples of John the Baptist and this crowd of Israelites, and I want us to see all of the doubt and the opposition that was beginning to surround Jesus Christ. Now, this is a challenging text of Scripture because we could get bogged down on a number of points in these 19 verses that make us scratch our heads a little bit. And I'm going to touch on them briefly, but I'm also going to try to not get too bogged down in some places where good men and women disagree. I want us to work through this interchange between Jesus and John's disciples and the crowd of Israelites and see all the doubt and opposition that was forming. And then... After we've considered this passage, I want us to ask a very important question for self-examination. What kind of a king do we want? What kind of a king are we seeking? What kind of a king are we trusting? So as we look at this text, I want you to notice the doubt and the opposition that was beginning to form around Christ and we're going to see this by examining three responses by Jesus. Number one, he responds to John's doubts. Number two, he responds to the crowd's misunderstanding of John. And number three, he responds to his generation with a rebuke. So number one this morning, found in verses one through six, Jesus responds to John's doubt. Let's read those verses again. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John the Baptist communicated to Jesus from prison, and in doing so, 
he revealed his doubts. Now, we're going to talk more about John's imprisonment when we get to chapter 14, where it's laid out more completely. But Herod, who ruled part of Israel as a vassal king under the allegiance of the Roman Empire, he had John imprisoned. But before John was confined, he had been preaching, if you recall, boldly about a Messiah who would come after him. A Christ who would, in his mind, quickly accomplish two things. John declared that this Christ would quickly accomplish two things. That the Messiah would bring spiritual restoration to the people of Israel, and he would bring fiery judgment down upon those who failed to repent. The Messiah, as John understood him, would immediately usher in a day of spiritual renewal while bringing God's judgment to those Jews and the Jewish religious leaders and perhaps even to their Roman overlords who failed to acknowledge their sin before God. Because in Matthew chapter 3, listen to what we've already considered, what he said there. This is John speaking in Matthew 3, 11 and 12. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And listen to this. He will baptize you. He's going to immerse you in something. Not actual water, but he's going to do something. He's going to bring something upon you. He will baptize you with two things, the Holy Spirit and fire, John said. And then he goes on. He explains what he means by this. In verse 12 of chapter 3, John says, The Messiah, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So as John's preaching, he's telling the people of Israel, one is going to come and he is going to baptize you. He is going to bring about the immersion of the Holy Spirit. And God's Spirit is going to bring all of God's people collectively into his barn, into his fold, into his kingdom. And he is going to take all the chaff, all of the unhelpful remnant, and he's going to burn it. But there was a problem. Though Jesus was performing the incredible work of the Messiah, directing people towards their great spiritual need, his work of judgment just didn't seem to be happening. Now we've gone through 10 chapters now, and nowhere has Jesus called fire down from heaven to destroy those who reject God. And John, I think, was evidently thinking well, where is all the fire? Where is the burning chaff? Where is the judgment upon those unrepentant ones who won't turn to the Messiah? You see, John, just like about everybody else in Israel, failed to grasp a great mystery surrounding Christ's coming. They failed to grasp that Christ would first need to suffer on a cross in order to bring about that spiritual renewal. And they failed to grasp that his coming would actually be two comings. For after he suffered on the cross, 
He would return to heaven and he would spiritually endow his disciples to build up his church by bringing people of all ethnicities into his fold. And only after this, it seems like so long of a season that is the church, he would come again. And at that second coming, he would bring the judgment. They didn't know this. They didn't grasp this. So John the Baptist, I think, living out his last days in a prison cell and hearing about Jesus' ministry, a ministry that in his mind failed to line up with his own understanding of the Messiah, sent Jesus a question by way of his own disciples. It says in verse 3, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, let's not rush to judgment of John. This is a man who's waited a long time, who's put up with an awful lot, who's in prison unjustly, and he's just not figuring how this could be. Why is the Messiah not doing the thing that I've always thought he was going to do? Why is Israel still under the thumb of Rome, and why are these horrible Pharisees still continuing to shepherd our people wrongly? John evidently had some doubts. Things were not lining up the way that he'd thought. Jesus was performing a ministry that wasn't in accord with his own understanding. So, in verses 4 through 6, Jesus responded to John's question by affirming his place as the one who is to come. Now, the Old Testament prophets declared that a blessed Redeemer would come to earth in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, verse 26 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Isaiah 59, verse 20 says, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. So this Messiah, long prophesied, was to come and fix what was broken. And this is precisely what Jesus came to do. And as these disciples of John the Baptist witnessed Jesus doing his teaching and his, and his uh, work of ministry of healing people, they were now to go back and they were to report to John what they had witnessed. As Jesus says in verse 4, go and tell John what you hear and see. And essentially Jesus told them in verse 5 to understand his ministry as the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. He says, the blind... They've received their sight. He says, the lame, they walk. He says, lepers, they are cleansed. The deaf, they hear. The dead, they're raised up incredibly. And the poor, all of those who are undermined and overlooked, they have good news preached to them. And of course, these are all things that Jesus had been doing in chapters 1 through 10 of this gospel. These are the very things that the prophets said the Messiah would do. Now, I want to relate that these are what the prophets said, because I also want to point out in a moment something that Jesus isn't doing that they said he would do. But first of all, listen to Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. The prophecy says, in that day of the Messiah, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. 
So the Messiah was to bring awesome healing along with spiritual renewal to God's people, like water that begins to flow in a dry desert. However, this list in verse 5 doesn't include something else that the prophets also said the Messiah would bring about. Listen one more time to another prophecy, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, speaking again of the Messiah. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Stop right there. That all sounds good so far. It all sounds like what Jesus has been doing. But now listen to this. Right after he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So the prophecy says the Messiah is going to come. He's going to proclaim God's favor, God's blessing upon his people. And he's going to bring about the day of vengeance of God. Jesus doesn't mention that statement about God's vengeance yet because the time for God's fiery judgment had not yet come. So, Jesus sends word back to John the Baptist relating that he was the prophesied Messiah, but rather than explaining to John the reasoning for the delayed day of judgment, because God doesn't always explain everything to us, Jesus, in verse 6, he tells John not to be offended. Essentially, he tells John, trust me. Blessing is for those who are not offended over this kind of king. Yes, my friends, understand, if you are here and you don't know Jesus, and if you are here and you do know Jesus, know that the day of judgment is coming. The Jews who failed to repent and believe in the Christ will be judged. The unrepentant Romans who burdened the Israelites will be judged. All those who persecute and hinder God's people, failing to turn from their ways and trust in Jesus, they will be judged. Every person who fails to turn to Jesus in repentant faith will be judged. God's full justice will be accomplished on a day to come. But when Jesus came, he showed himself to be a different kind of king for his people. He revealed something about his heart that they didn't expect. And what kind of a king is he? Well, could I just tease out for a moment the very end of this chapter? One of my favorite passages in all of the 66 books of Scripture. I can't wait to get to this text. I'm trying to be patient. He says in verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And notice how he describes his heart. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 
Yes, God is a God of justice, and one day Jesus will judge the world. But Jesus has a profound love for his people. And he evidences his gentle and lowly heart by loving them and by willingly going to the cross, laying down his life, shedding his blood to pay for them, that their sins might be forgiven. His first thought when he came was not, I'm going to preach it once. If they don't listen, fire. His thought was, come, preach, they won't believe, and then I'm going to die for all of my people who I'm going to call to myself. What love is found in this kind of a king? I would say it's way better than any kind of king this world could conjure up. So don't be offended over Jesus. Don't be tripped up over the nature of his kingship, which is first directed at solving your heart and sin problem. Instead, realize the blessing that comes from trusting him. His people serve the one with a gentle and lowly heart who proclaims good news even to the poor, small, minuscule people of the earth. Secondly today, Jesus responds to the crowd's misunderstanding of John. He responds to the crowd's misunderstanding of John. And this is where it gets rather complex. Verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. O oh Lord, give us ears. John relates that the bulk, Jesus, excuse me, relates that the bulk of the people had missed John's purpose. And he is rather sharp with them here, isn't he? When John was out in the desert preaching about me, what did you go out there to see, he says, in my words? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? In the Bible, when it speaks of being shaken by the wind, that is often an expression of a person who is easily swayed by some form of new teaching or is out of his mind with some strange belief system. For instance, in Ephesians 4, verse 14, Paul says, So that we no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
It's not good for Christians to be like those who can easily be swayed by the current winds of culture and current winds of false doctrine. Well, Jesus seems to be saying here that some of the people went out to John simply to see a madman who preached something but was, not, but was so full of folly. They didn't believe his message, but they went out to see him because they wanted to gawk at him. Or he says... Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Now this word soft is probably Jesus being ironic here. Because John the Baptist seems to have worn a more rugged attire in his ministry. It says back in Matthew 3 verse 4 that John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt. I've ridden a camel. I'm wearing a leather belt. Neither one is overly comfortable or soft. I think Jesus is saying, did you go out to see a man who was a spectacle? Did you go out to the wilderness to John because he was merely good entertainment? Hey, let's go see that guy who dresses really weird and says all that wild stuff. Well, Jesus rebukes them by saying in verse 8, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. In other words, the people were so concerned about what John looked like, though even kings dressed differently than them in more fanciful garb, that they failed to see past John's unique exterior to consider what mattered most, his message. Or, Jesus says, did you go out to see a prophet? Now, prophets had become a rare thing in that day. There had not been many for a very long time. And evidently, some of the Jews went out to John in the wilderness because they wanted to see what they had never seen before. God's prophet pointing people towards God's way. But Jesus relates that John was actually more than a prophet. And Jesus connects John the Baptist and his ministry in verse 10 to what was written by the prophet Malachi. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. This was declared ahead of time that this man would come. And John, John the Baptist, my friends, was more than a prophet because John himself was actually prophesied about. As the prophecy stated, a messenger would come before the Lord who would prepare the way for him. John wasn't just prophesying. John was one who was prophesied about. It was declared that he would come. And what an incredible role John played. I think of him as an arrow who pointed everyone to Jesus. He was designated by God ahead of time for a most special function to announce to Israel that the day of their Messiah had finally come. But sadly, many of the Israelites, including their religious leaders, failed to accept John's message, and they thus failed to accept the promised Messiah. And by speaking about John, Jesus is able to start speaking about himself and his kingdom. Look again at verse 11. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he 
Now, this is a verse that I remember as a kid, I thought, how can that be? Because I always thought John was a pretty cool guy. I mean, wow. How could I, if I'm in the kingdom, be greater than he? Well, John had a most honorable role. No one ever born up to that point in time had such an honorable place as John the Baptist. For he was the herald who announced the soon coming king. And yet, John's day was an old day. His announcement, as splendid as it was, still pointed forward. He was part of that old prophecy, that old expectation that still looked for the Messiah's great work. It says in verse 13, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. It's like it, it takes all of it and makes it one collection. You've got the prophets and the law. All of that was continuing up until the day of John. All of that is one unit. Just like the other prophets and even the law of Moses, John bore witness to the coming one. And in this sense, his ministry was lesser than those who now proclaim Jesus in his kingdom. The one who is least in the kingdom, Jesus says, is greater than he. And what I think Jesus means is that even those Christians who are small, even those Christians who feel weak and insignificant, even those Christians who seem to have little importance in the grand scheme of things, even those Christians who are small, have a greater announcement to make than did John. For all of us on this side of the cross who have come to believe in the crucified and resurrected King, we announce Jesus as the conqueror, past tense, the conqueror of sin and death and hell. My friends, John the Baptist only got to say, this is what the Christ will do, but we get to say, this is what Jesus Christ did for you. And in that sense, our ministry is greater. But Christ's kingdom is under assault. As verse 12 seems to tell us, since John the Baptist started announcing his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, there has been hostility towards this message and towards this king and his kingdom which would follow. The kingdom, verse 12 says, has suffered violence and the violence take it by force. And what I think this means, though there are various interpretations, what I think this means is that though Christ's kingdom is advancing with people believing in Jesus and becoming citizens of his kingdom, it faces a great opposition from those who want a very different kind of king. These want to seize the kingdom, and they want to reshape it to fit their own desires. These are the unrepentant, and they are uninterested in a savior who came for their sin problem, and they want a very different kind of leader, one shaped in their own sinful likeness. And Jesus is saying all of this to point out to this crowd of listeners that they were making a terrible mistake. For rather than hearing him and believing in him and following him, the one who would meet their heart needs as their gentle redeemer, they were going their own way just as they always had. 
He says in verse 14, If you are willing, he, John, is Elijah to come. What? If you are willing, he, John, is Elijah to come. Now, Jesus has already referenced the book of Malachi back in verse 10. But he does so here again in verse 14. For God spoke through the prophet Malachi and said in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So a man would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, I think, because that's what Luke's gospel says. He would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, the great Old Testament prophet, and this man would attempt to direct the people's hearts towards God. But if they did not accept him, God, it says, would come and strike the land with utter destruction. This is what I think Jesus is saying. If you will repent and accept that John the Baptist was the prophet sent by God in the spirit and power of that great prophet of old, believing in the Messiah that he announced, then you will be blessed. But if you will not accept this Elijah, then you will be destroyed. Jesus is telling the crowd to get real about John. He's telling the crowd to take John's ministry seriously because he was the prophesied messenger, the one who came with the same power that Elijah had, and he pointed them towards their awesome, gentle Redeemer. But if they continue to reject John's message, then they have again rejected their God, and destruction would come upon them. I think that's what Jesus is communicating. And if you stick around for next week, you're going to see that his rebuke of the Jewish people in that day directly was quite pointed, talking specifically about the judgment that will come. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, in verse 21. And this message of the king is for those who have ears to hear. Verse 15 is fitting. It says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is saying, listen up. If you have any ears at all on your head, you better listen up right now. Because what I'm saying and what John has been saying is life and death for all of eternity. It's either destruction or it's kingdom. And you must make a decision. And this leads us to our third response. Jesus responds to his generation with a rebuke. Verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces, calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. 
Christ's generation was one of complaint over God's provision. Now, we're going to discuss this word generation more in later sermons, but Jesus seems to be referring here to the people of that day, those who were alive and listening to him at that point in time. And his words for his generation were stinging as he compared them to children who whine while they play. They played a flute, hoping their playmates would dance, which was kind of a wedding game, but they wouldn't dance for them. They sang a dirge, which was a song of lament at a funeral. So it's a funeral game. But they didn't play along, for they didn't act like mourners. Now don't get sidetracked by the strange games that these children played. And it does sound a little weird. (laughs) But don't get sidetracked by that, but grasp the point that Jesus is making. Children wanted something from their playmates, but they didn't get it, so they complained. And this correlates with how most of the people treated John and how they were now beginning to treat Jesus. When John the Baptist came, he didn't attend fancy dinners and he didn't drink wine. Instead, he lived an ascetic lifestyle out in the wilderness But the people didn't want this kind of a prophet, so they defamed him by saying, he has a demon. They had a different idea of what they wanted, so they rejected. They rejected God's prophet. When Jesus came, eating and drinking with the people, they accused him from the opposite direction. They said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. But they went still further. They said, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So they attacked Jesus by not only saying that he was an undisciplined man, but that he also made friends with the scum of the earth in their minds. If only they had realized that we, each and every one of us, including those of us in this room, we, each and every one of us, are all tax collectors and sinners. And praise God that those are precisely the people that Jesus came to die for. The wisdom of John and Jesus is justified by the actions of John and Jesus. Verse 19, wisdom is justified by her deeds. John declared God's truth and pointed the way to the Messiah, even though he was confused over Christ's present ministry. And Jesus not only declared truth, but he fulfilled all prophecy and went to the cross for tax collectors and sinners like you and me. Oh, what profound wisdom is on display. So we've gone through verses 1 through 19. We've seen what Jesus said as he responded to these individuals. And here is the question for us. What kind of a king do you want? And I don't say that to you as if you actually had an option. I say that to you because... We can so easily, so subtly begin to dream up of Jesus, dream up a Jesus different than the Jesus that's conveyed in the scriptures. Are you hoping, or have you been hoping, for a different Messiah, a different Christ than the Lord who is conveyed in scripture? 
So many people, they want a really simple Jesus. They want a really easy Jesus. A Jesus who only says the most, most simple, kind words. Not a Jesus who would ever say things like, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Not the Jesus who would ever say something like, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. We don't want Jesus to say, woe to us. And yet this is precisely the kind of Jesus that has taken form here in America, an idol that has arisen where we make Jesus something in our own image who meets our needs that we think we want, that makes us feel good about ourselves, but leaves us alienated still from God because of our sin. We want a Jesus who seems really sweet and simple and nice, but we fail to miss the reality that Jesus came for the purpose of dying for people who are not so sweet and nice. He came for sinners. Many people desire a different kind of king. Some want a king who gets right to the political and who gets right to the judgmental, neglecting the necessity of the spiritual. They want a Jesus who's going to make America like it used to be again. They want a Jesus who is going to make everything like it was in 1954. They want a Jesus who's going to bring about all of the political renewal that we want in this land. They want a Jesus who's going to make everything good so they can raise up and be wealthy and good here in the United States of America. They want a Jesus who's going to bring judgment down upon those who would dare to step up and question our system. And those others may be so very wrong in their perspective, but we want a Jesus that's going to come and just push them out. Some want a king who gets right to the political and to the judgmental, neglecting the necessity of the spiritual, because, my friends, what America needs most is not a political revival. What America needs most is an internal transformation that comes from the gospel of Jesus. And it doesn't happen at election time. It happens when God's people go to that one individual who lives next door and says, my brother or sister, can we get to know each other a little better? And then over time, the gospel is shared. It, it starts slow, like a mustard seed that grows into a powerful tree. Or... Others want a king who is all about the blessings while overlooking the problem of their transgressing. They want a king who's going to bring all the good things, all the pleasures, all those wonderful things in the Bible that it talks about, peace on earth and, and golden streets and whatnot, while overlooking the problem of sin, while forgetting that between us and our God is a great barrier and unless our king is willing to come and lay down his authoritative right as the sovereign one, shedding his blood on the cross, each and every one of us will be under the judgment of the king. And so we go to the people of our land, and we don't tell them about this sweet, simple little Jesus who never says hard things. We go to the people of this land that says, you know, Jesus said you need to take up your cross and follow him. Matthew chapter 10. They want a king who is all about the blessings while overlooking the problem of the transgressing. So, as Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by him, the king. He is not the king that we thought he would be, but he is the king that we need him to be. And now we know who he is. We rejoice and say, hallelujah, 
Hallelujah, praise God. The King has come. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us, Father, to see past this temporary moment. As hard as it is to live in the darkness around us with the disruption and all of the antagonism, Lord, and all of the uncertainty, Lord, and all of the loud voices. Oh, Lord, let us cut through and be the gentle, loving voice that says, I may not have all of the answers when it comes to this particular country, which is here today and gone tomorrow, but I do know a Savior King who will be the one who rules the world for all days. Oh, Lord, let us go to our people with a better message though it's important for us to know what's going on and to be good citizens of this land, let us remember, Lord, that this land is so very temporary. And let us, Lord, point, towards, point, point people towards a, a better and far more important direction, towards the King of kings, who is our Lord and the Lord of lords. And we pray this in his name.